Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. This show has been pre-recorded on Saturday, April the 10th, to be rebroadcast on Monday, April the 12th, 2021. At 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Live in Austin, Texas, on KOOP 91.7 FM and streaming live at coop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 51st post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. As you're listening to the show tonight, the new president of Ecuador should be announced. The leading candidate in the runoff election Sunday, April the 11th, Andres Arauz, was our guest back on October of 2019. We also had the great honor of interviewing the former ambassador to the UN for Ecuador a year later in August of 2020. This show is mainly made up of the excerpts from these two interviews, which together provide a historical context as well of the environment in which Ecuador's democracy has been struggling to be realized and seeks to reveal the special types of obstacles put in the way of democracy in Ecuador and other nations of the South by the United States, while featuring its latest manifestation of inhibiting democratic outcomes called lawfare. Enjoy. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. This is 91.7 KOOP right here in Austin, Texas. Today, it's August the 6th, 2020. My dad passed away a few years ago, but this is his birthday, so this show is dedicated to him. We are very honored to have with us Guillaume Long, Senior Policy Analyst at Center for Economic Policy Research, who held several cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador that we'll talk about in just a second. But first of all, Dr. Long, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, listen, Dr. Long, he held several cabinet positions under two different administrations, with Rafael Carrillo's administration, as well as current President Moreno's He was the U.N. ambassador under Moreno's administration as well, in which he resigned some years ago. He also was the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Ecuador, the Minister of Culture and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent, and as I mentioned, most recently served as the permanent representative to the United Nations at the U.N., His own training is is in history, where he holds a Ph.D. in international politics from the University of London, and his research focuses primarily on foreign policy of Latin American states, regionalism, and integration in Latin America. Dr. Long also has done a lot of work around a number of organizations, the Organization of American States, Mercursor, UNICER, CELAC, and other regional bodies. And so he's been at the highest levels of trying to help to negotiate the best type of quality of life for the citizens of Ecuador for many years. So I wanted to just start off, if I could, with an observation that in our own history in the United States, we've been heavily involved in the southern hemisphere 
of this hemisphere. In which, chronologically speaking, the United States began to assert its imperial power over Latin and Central America following the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Essentially, the Monroe Doctrine warned European nations that no longer would the U.S. tolerate their further unfettered colonization of the New World, if you will. The United States not only had joined the international power structure of powers, such as France and U.K., which had largely supplanted the Spanish and Portuguese as the dominant colonizers of the New World, but in fact, as a burgeoning power, the United States was declaring the Western Hemisphere south of the United States its own backyard of potential market. And there's been a whole kind of evolution of intervention that has occurred over the years. It began mainly with just armed intervention. And then I think as late as the Nicaraguan interventions in the 1920s, we were losing U.S. Marines. And that was not good for the public relations of being involved in these other countries in which we sought to have governments that were more comfortable for U.S. investment interests, I, I would suggest. But anyhow, eventually... What manifested in this intervention evolution, in this evolution of intervention techniques... Was a, a process of creating a school, a School of America's Watch, that actually started to train individuals throughout Central and South America, and actually their own military institutions became ultimately trained under this kind of umbrella type of system. And it kind of supplanted the older type of intervention without putting at risk the chances of U.S. service people coming back in body bags, so to speak. And then that has changed, has evolved, if you will, that even with the very detailed types of analysis that people like Philip Agee and other people that were firsthand involved in the manipulation of the internal civil politics of nations on behalf of U.S. foreign policy interests, whether they be trade unions, whether they be other trade associations or, or those types of things. And in fact, Philip Agee, former CIA agent who spent 12 years as a CIA agent and published in 1975 Inside the Company, a CIA diary, he spent four years in the early 60s in Ecuador. And he details in a separate piece called Terrorism and Civil Society as Instruments of U.S. Policy in Cuba, which was an article he published in May of 2003. He details how the CIA had been deeply involved in secretly funding and manipulating foreign NGOs, non-governmental volunteer organizations. And these vast operations circled the globe, these are his words, and were targeted at political parties, trade unions, as we mentioned, uh, and businessmen's associations, youth and student organizations, women's groups, civic organizations, religious communities, professional intellectual and cultural societies, and the public information media, namely radio and TV. The network functioned at local, national, regional, and global levels. They were Media operations, he says, were underway continuously in practically every country where the CIA could pay journalists to publish its materials as if they were the journalists' own. So when we share the concept of penetrating civil society in third countries, 
This is the whole breadth of civil society penetrated by the CIA and U.S.-related interests. The very things that we accuse other countries of doing without evidence of any substance, we are the experts at, as indicated by Philip Agee and a host of other former CIA agents that became very disillusioned and shared their insights of their work as well. In other words, in method and in practice. We sought to manipulate in the internal affairs of other countries the outcomes of elections in a way that would be favorable to what we perceived to be our own interests. And then there was, I guess, what they call the pink tide or whatever you want to call it. There were a lot of countries that were voting in really progressive governments at the turn of the century, and they were making great gains throughout their own countries with respect to the quality of life of their majority populations. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you know, you can measure these things. In fact, the Center for Economic Policy Research, in which uh, Dr. Long works with now, did some great work. There was a PhD economist, doctor and economist Jose Antonio Cordero, who basically compared the quality of life for Hondurans pre and post Manuel Zelaya's U.S.-endorsed June 2009 coup, and compared how majority population quality of life was with respect to, you know, whether it be literacy rates, whether it be access to schooling and free lunches or whether it be poverty rates and those types of things. And there was a very clear and very definite improvement in all of these major indices under Zelaya. Three and a half year tenure. Before he was accrued out. Rafael Correa was president in Ecuador for 2007 to 2017. And during that 10-year period of the Citizens Party was in power, the same types of indices improved dramatically for the majority population. Under Korea's 10 years of leadership, Ecuador's minimum wage more than doubled, billions were invested in health care, and poverty was cut in half. Once Korea's administration ended and Moreno was voted in as president and became U.S. foreign policy friendly, under Moreno, the level of structural poverty increased some 10% from June of 2017 to June of 2019. Extreme poverty also saw a rise of some 8.4% to 9.5% during that same period. And the Gini coefficient, a measure of economic inequality, also increased significantly from 0.462 in June of 2017 to 0.478 in June of 2019. In other words, Moreno's policies of reducing social spending had principally benefited the rich. Uh, this is all documented in the article by Dennis Rogatyuk, R-O-G-A-T-Y-U-K, in his October 7, 2019 article, Ecuadorians Revolt Against Repressive U.S.-backed President Lenin Moreno's Neoliberal Policies. And then even in Bolivia, Evo Morales was president from 2006 to 2019. The same types of quality of life changes that were in the positive were occurring. Under the leadership of President Evo Morales in the 13 years in Bolivia as president, illiteracy in Bolivia was reduced from 13% in 2006 to 2.4% in 2018. Unemployment rates were reduced from 9.2% to 4.1%, the lowest in the region. Moderate poverty was reduced from 60% to 34.6%. Extreme poverty was reduced from 38.2% to 15%. By 2019, when he left office, Bolivia was the fastest growing country in the region, raising 
the GDP to $43 billion, up from some $9 billion in 2005 when the government took office. So as a result, the failure to be able to get into power, the people that serve the best perceived interest for U.S. investment, there was this term that I came across, Guillaume, that I wanted you to speak to. It's called lawfare, where there's actually through judicial and legislative ways of manipulating the situation to actually outlaw certain people from even running so that you could control who actually would run for office and therefore impact what normally would then be a compromised election and not free and fair. And there's a group, Progressive International, that came out with a letter of concern that they sent to Michelle Bachelet's office at the United Nations. She's the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And then I think it was also co-written to the Special Repertoire Volet. Her name, I might not be able to pronounce, Clement Nelyatose Volet. She's a UN Special Rapporteur expressing what they call the collapse of democratic institutions in Ecuador. So what I wanted to really start to show with you speaking to, if you would, is Rafael Carrillo was president of Ecuador from 2007 to 2017. The present president, Moreno, was actually his vice president during the first six years of that administration, 2007 to 2013. And subsequently, when he was elected, he had campaigned on the continuation of what was a very promising upward trajectory of quality of life issues for Ecuadorians, but changed his path very quickly. And maybe you can pick it up from there. Can you share with us what the major concerns of the Progressive International is with respect to these maneuvers by the electoral authorities of Ecuador to eliminate certain parties and people from running for office? Sure. So, as you uh, rightly said, I think the 10 years of presidency of Rafael Correa in Ecuador between 2007 and 2017 were unprecedented in terms of the advances of uh, human rights, basically. And there was a huge reduction of poverty, unprecedented in Ecuador's history. Also, very importantly, uh, Ecuador was one of the champions, one of the global champions in the reduction of inequality. It's very important in the context of Latin America because Latin America is still the most unequal region in the world. If you look at averages, Latin America is kind of the global middle class. If you look at the per capita GDP, but of course that average hides huge disparities between obscene levels of wealth and uh, you know shameful uh, levels of, of poverty of misery. So and 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 from that inequality stems a lot of Latin America's pro- structural problems, uh, including a lack of social cohesion, uh, political instability, but also urban violence and all sorts of phenomena such as crime and even narco-trafficking, which is one of the concerns of the United States, you know, is actually um, a lot of academic work on those issues, is actually a result of of inequality even more than it is a result of of poverty. So inequality was a great enemy and a lot of advances in tackling inequality, poverty. And I think, I mean, there are many things that could be said, but maybe two important legacies of the Correa government. Uh, One, you know, in foreign policy that was sovereign, that was about diversifying Ecuador's relations. It was also about creating uh, much more uh, integration and unification of South America and Latin America. And as you said, there were a number of neighbors uh, during those years in Latin America that were like-minded and believed that imperialism is always stronger when it applies divide-and-rule policies. 
Uh, so if you're divided, then you're likely to sort of, you know, go down the road of uh, the race to the bottom, right? You compete with your neighbor, and in competing to your neighbor for the favors of the great power, you open yourself up more to capital, you you make your labor force more, uh, more cheap, essentially, and so you, you make it, uh, you take away uh, rights in order for investment and capital to come your way. You, may, you, you might even tax capital less because you want capital to come in your country and your, in your neighbor's country, but then your neighbor does the same thing, you know, a sort of a, a constant race to the bottom to see, to see who opens themselves up the most and who is the most vulnerable and the most seductive to transnational capital. So we understood that this was the recipe for disaster, and this is what happened in Latin America for many years, many decades, and that united, we could obviously change that, and together, Latin American countries could impose conditions on, you know, on capital, but also on, on, on certain powers, on, or at least be less, certainly be less vulnerable, be less weak. So that's one of the great, I think, important pillars, aside from the more social element, the social side of the Correa government. I think there's an important element linked to foreign policy, geopolitics, sovereignty. You know, there was a big U.S. military base in Ecuador until 2009, until we said, well, thank you very much, but no thank you, right? And uh, that was important. The, the Assange story is also uh, quite well known. It has had quite a lot of media coverage. The fact that we gave Julian Assange asylum, which was quite daring for a small country like Ecuador, and uh, it created some resistance in the United States. And then finally, on the economic front, I think it's very important to understand that I think maybe our greatest legacy is to have proven to the world that neoliberalism, you know, it's, it's often not the term used in English or in the United States, but you know, whatever you want to call it, deregulation, you know, the small state, uh, what we inherited from Reaganomics and from Thatcherism. Well, it's, I think it's harmful in all contexts, but it's certainly harmful in the developing world. You already have an absence of state. If you want to make an already absent state even smaller, that's the recipe for anarchy, for disaster, and for making powerful actors even more powerful and weaker actors even weaker. So I think we implemented policies that were not neoliberal, and we demonstrated that neoliberalism is not just unfair, clearly unfair from the point of view of workers, from the point of view of vulnerable people, but it's actually not the intelligent form of capital accumulation. Right? And even following sort of orthodox indicators, you know, like GDP growth and things that uh, mainstream economists kind of tend to privilege, you know, our results were better. Our post-neoliberal anti-austerity uh, results were much more impressive. We had growth, we had a thriving economy, we had a lot of public investment, we built a lot of infrastructure. During the 10 years of Korea, Ecuadorian GDP doubled. Our guest, the former UN ambassador for Ecuador, Guillermo Long, goes on to describe the U-turn from the Carilla government's 10 years of work by the Moreno government, as well as the repression that accompanied it. Later in the interview, he turns to the subject of lawfare. Listen. This kind of lawfare approach result, can you fill us in on the details as best as you see them from a more informed position? Yeah, so I, that's exactly right. I think it's important to to understand that the return of the right in Latin America has been a regional phenomenon. So actually, since the commodities decline, what we were just talking about, you know, 2014, 2015, the prices of Latin American raw materials went crushing down. It complicated things for 
uh, all the governments that were in power, and because we had a majority of leftist governments, it complicated things for them. And, you know, there was some political fatigue, you know, when you've been in government for, in the case of uh, the PT in Brazil, 13 years, the Kirchner's in Argentina also 13 years, in the case of Rafael Correa, 10 years, and there was some understandable fatigue. People want change. And in some cases, as in Argentina, they voted right-wing. In, in other cases, nobody voted. It was just coups. But, you know, in some cases, they actually voted right-wingers in. But as soon as these right-wingers started carrying out neoliberal reform, people realized that what they had before needed to be salvaged, needed to be protected. And so we actually saw, for example, last year, you probably saw this on the news, there was some coverage in the U.S., a huge wave of anti-neoliberal protests in several Latin American countries, including Chile, Colombia, Haiti, Brazil, but also my country, Ecuador, the biggest protests in contemporary Ecuadorian history, certainly in my lifetime, my generation, you know, uh, which were brutally repressed. 11 people died in the protest, you know, 1,500 people were detained, there were uh, 1,300 uh, injured people, and several hundred of them were very seriously so, with loss of eyes because they were... Uh, you know, the, the tear gas was shot in their faces. Was actually probably uh, the order was given. Now, lots of people lost eyes. You know, too much to be a coincidence. So, you know, so that that's the response of people in power. But because people on the streets are not happy with neoliberalism, of course, when there's an electoral outlet, when there's an election, where there's a possibility to change things, people are voting for the left, for the progressives, for the whatever you want to call them, the ones that are not in favor of a neoliberal program. And so this means that, of course, if someone like Lula would have run in the elections in Brazil, he would have won. And all the polls gave him as a, as a winner against Bolsonaro. Uh, this means that if Correa was physically in Ecuador and able to do politics in Ecuador within the democratic rules of the game or be a candidate or support his candidate, but just being physically in Ecuador and being involved in Ecuadorian politics, you know, we would win. We're probably going to win without him anyway. So... This has this uh, takes me to lawfare. I mean, this has been one of the ways in which political power, right wing in Latin America at the moment, has tried to stop historic leaders and progressive parties from returning to power is by uh, orchestrating what a kind of judicial coups in a way by controlling judiciary and by uh, carrying out these huge court cases often hand-in-hand hand with some very pro-elite and media so that it has political repercussions and that there's a real scandal and there's a real narrative to it. And, you know, this is the, this is the new lawfare. I mean, it, it wasn't invented in Latin America. There's always, you know, there's always been a judicialization of politics. It's happened throughout history. It's happened, actually, the term was invented in the United States, lawfare. It's a play on words, you know, legal warfare. It's uh, an English term. But it's not a coincidence that Every single leftist movement in Latin America, particularly the ones who have been in government, are now being victim of a level of judicial persecution unprecedented, never seen before in our history. And, and let me interject something here, if I could, because this is profoundly the definition of undemocracy, being undemocratic, right? In other words, you are usurping the will of democracy. You're basically acknowledging that we can't let these elections go uncontested or the right people will not be in power. Therefore, we have to manipulate the field. I mean, I'm not suggesting people are actually saying those words, but their actions are creating the conditions in which that is the outcome. 
So as we go to our last segment with former UN Ambassador Guillermo Long of Ecuador, so in the real world, we are not promoting democracy. Instead, the policies we support would best be described as if you cannot beat them at the polls, make them ineligible to run. This is what lawfare is. This is at least part of what lawfare is according to our prior segment. And in this last segment, Ambassador Long describes the different ways that the progressive interests in Ecuador are being blocked from gaining access to the Ecuadorian democratic process. There are two ways that they're trying to block the progressive leftists in participating in the February, in upcoming February elections. The first is by banning the party, which you've rightly mentioned, and uh, there's been a lot of uh, international solidarity on that front and denouncing it. You were talking about the uh, Progressive International writing to the High Commissioner Bachelet at the UN, and it's, it's, it's an ongoing battle. The second is by barring Correa himself, and they've had to do with this. It opened 30 criminal investi- investigations, 30, and they, none of them led them to anywhere. And finally, they found one that they could actually try and abstain here because Correa lives in Belgium, where his family lives. He didn't flee to Belgium. He left to Belgium as soon as he left his presidency. He, long before his legal problems started, uh, he denounced all along that he would go to Belgium. Uh, but anyway, he lives in Belgium, so they had to try it in abstain in, in they have to try him in abstention, and only certain cases can be tried in abstention. In any event, they found an advisor, a former Correa advisor, willing to say that she'd received bribes and that Correa was aware of it and that this was for legal campaign financing. And, and she, they, the only evidence was a little notebook that she wrote. Well, she wrote it in the present tense, saying, today I received so, uh, from such and such such an amount of money. All the way, you know, really precise, down to the exact cent. Except it transpired that this notebook that she claimed she'd written in 2013, 2014, the physical notebook, the notebook itself, was printed in 2018. So she had, to, and this, the notebook is written in the present tense, right? Today I received, and then she'll write, checked, you know, as if, as if in real-time accounting, you know, she'll, she'll check it as if she's handed the money over to the right person. You know, it really looks like a real-time accounting a diary. And so she, now she claims that she wrote it from memory in 2018 on a 45-minute flight between Quito and Guayaquil in Ecuador, and this was accepted as evidence by the court, and it's right. on the basis of this evidence that they landed him an eight-year jail sentence. Right? This is the level of the crudeness of the control that mm-hmm. they exert on the judiciary and how you can ban Correa. First, he can't go to Ecuador because he has an eight-year jail sentence if he lands in Ecuador. And secondly, he, they've taken away his political rights for 25 years, which essentially means he cannot be a candidate for 25 years, which, you know, he's, probably, he's in his late 50s. This means, you know, the rest of his political life, fundamentally, right? So that's really important to understand. Now, the new forces of reaction and the new coups, the new pro-status quo, pro-elite forces in Latin America are essentially the the judiciary and the the control that the political power and the executive branch has over a non-independent judiciary. And of course, an independent judiciary is a fundamental pillar of democracy. If you don't have that, you simply, there's no democracy. So this concludes our interview excerpts from the Bringing Light into Darkness show of August 10th, 2020, that featured former UN ambassador for Ecuador, Guillermo Long. We now transition to an earlier interview in October 14th, 2019, 
with Andres Arauz. And as we said in the intro, he is the leading candidate for the Ecuadorian presidency in the runoff election that is tomorrow, Sunday, April the 11th, 2021. But first, we need to take a quick break for the pause. You are listening to the premier community radio station of the nation. That would be 91.7 KOOP right here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. This is bringing light into darkness, and we will be back in a flash. 